We can break down the mission, vision, action into your personal plan and then begin practicing because everyone listening is going to be sitting with or Zooming with someone who can help you. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is BJ Nadig. I'm one of the podcast associates over here. And today I'm sitting down with um, Rebecca McPettit, a second year MPA student who had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Patton McDowell, um, a leader in the nonprofit and philanthropy sectors. So, Rebecca, I'm so curious what drove you to want to talk with Dr. McDowell in the first place? Well, thanks so much, BJ. Um, you know, I've worked in the philanthropy sector with foundations and nonprofits for years. And I was really drawn to talking to Dr. McDowell about his experiences working with hundreds of nonprofits as a consultant. He's really well known for his work with nonprofit leaders. And so I was hoping to get some lessons learned on developing leadership skills for people from all backgrounds and skill sets. The advice he gives is really useful for anyone going into any sector, but particularly relevant for those interested in the world of nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. There are some great nuggets in this conversation that I know I'll be taking with me from it. What are some of the themes that you hope listeners um, keep in their heads as they listen to this conversation? You know, we're often told that developing leadership experience is vital to continue progressing in our careers, but that's kind of where the advice stops. In this conversation, Dr. McDowell gives an actual roadmap to gaining leadership experience, which I personally found really helpful and think that others will too. We walked it back to someone in an initial, potentially administrative position at an organization with no opportunities to gain leadership experience within that organization in their role. So we talked through volunteer opportunities and gaining a more holistic Um, experience outside of the workplace in order to kind of work on those leadership skills and really show some proven dedication to expanding your skill set that I personally found really helpful and I hope others will too. I love that. So you heard that listeners, get your pencils out so you can start making your roadmap as you listen to this amazing conversation between Rebecca McPettit and Dr. Patton McDowell. The Cornell Policy Review is delighted to welcome Dr. Patton McDowell to our podcast. Dr. McDowell is a speaker, author, consultant, and coach. He founded PMA Nonprofit Leadership in 2009 and has worked with over 275 nonprofit organizations on leadership development, fundraising, and strategic planning. He's led fundraising teams at two universities and spent a decade working for the Special Olympics. His podcast, Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, has over 200 episodes featuring nonprofit leaders from around the world, and he recently published his first book in 2022, also called Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. Dr. McDowell serves as an executive in residence for the Brooks School of Public Policy at Cornell and has been busy today presenting in a class and meeting with students at roundtable discussions and one-on-one counseling sessions. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me for this interview and open up your expertise to an even wider audience. I'm delighted to do it, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, first of all, how are you and how has your time with the students been today? It's been inspiring. Uh, I knew I was impressed from afar with the programs here uh, at Cornell and particularly in the Brooks School. And so getting a chance to work one-on-one with some of them and hear about their potential interest in nonprofit leadership, as you and I discussed, is, is really why I love the work I do. So grateful for the opportunity. 
Yeah, absolutely. We talked a little bit earlier, but um, it's always helpful and interesting, especially to me, to hear about people's career paths and the various twists and turns. Can you tell us what led you to where you are now? Yeah, I was fortunate. Um, an internship with Special Olympics International um, was, uh, by happenstance, something I did during my undergraduate years. And I thought it would be fun to work in Washington, D.C. for a summer. I, I did not have any noble long-term vision with that opportunity, but it was eye-opening and career-defining because I realized that the nonprofit sector has enormous professional opportunities. And so what I thought might be just a, a good, feel-good experience became a, an opportunity, and I was actually hired by Special Olympics International, worked in the state office of North Carolina and their chapter office, and my journey into nonprofit had, was underway. Uh, I realized that I needed to enhance my skills and experience. As many of your listeners know, the nonprofit arena requires uh, philanthropy um, in most cases. And so I kind of sharpened my skills and became a fundraiser for two universities, which allowed me to continue to get experience in different types of nonprofit settings, as well as the skills required, I think, to be uh, hopefully a, a relatively effective leader. And then about 15 years ago, decided that I, I wanted to, to practice or maybe teach what I had learned uh, across this journey and start a consulting practice. So as you so eloquently shared in the opening, I have had the privilege of working with almost 300 nonprofit organizations. I primarily help with strategic planning fundraising, and leadership development, which I think in many respects are the key pillars to any organization's success, but certainly in the nonprofit space, those three are paramount. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the strategic planning always, it's very interesting, the different research that goes into it, um, the retreats that people like to do, and then end up with a wonderful, gorgeous strategic plan that doesn't end up doing very much on the shelf it's yeah. on the shelf isn't it <laughs> exactly uh so the frame versus the action is an interesting an interesting twist for sure um how so what are some of the key characteristics and experience you've worked with a lot of nonprofit leaders at this point definitely it sounds like but today for like a new generation of potential leaders um what are some of like the characteristics and experiences that they should be developing and building today whether they're working in a job, whether they're in school, um, in their free time, what are some of those things people should be building on? Well, you and I talked about it too, Rebecca. I think a, a deeper understanding of philanthropy, not just the tactics of fundraising, but all aspects of philanthropy, because it's changing um, largely for the better. Um, but there are trends in the sector that as we move into nonprofit leadership, we're going to have to understand the nuances of donor advised funds, for example, uh, which is a dramatically increasing vehicle through which high net worth philanthropists are making contributions. So it's a good example of something that a nonprofit leader is gonna need to understand. Similarly, understanding the power of legacy giving. Um, certain studies suggest that there's billions, if not trillions of dollars of, of family wealth that's gonna be transferred. And the good news is that much of that wealth will, in fact, be directed to nonprofits. But is your nonprofit open for that type of contribution? 
because uh, again, when you talk to philanthropists making those decisions, they're going to leave their estate uh, kind of uh, generosity to organizations that have connected with them. And so again, that so philanthropy, broadly speaking, is an area that I certainly emphasize. The second thing I believe is is a key kind of skill or experience is going to be financial acumen. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone like me who came up through the program side of a nonprofit, I didn't have to mess with the the finance, the budgets, the accounting. And I wish, however, that I spent more time understanding that side of the business because nonprofits are in fact businesses, as you know. And, and so anything uh, an emerging leader can do to enhance their financial understanding and again, using the term financial acumen, because increasingly your your key funders, your board members, others are going to expect you to understand both the finances of your nonprofit organization, but also more broadly how the sector is affected by financial trends. You know, if you are receiving support from local, state, or even federal government sources, um, if you're receiving other types of contributions, earned revenue sources, all of this adds to the complexity. Uh, and so it's something I would certainly recommend someone thinking about nonprofit leadership consider. Right. I think um, the transition to thinking about accounting as dry, <laughs> dry and just hard to get through to actually think of it as how do you actually um, operationalize your impact? You know, it's truly great like point dollars um, that helped me get through my classes. That's for sure. <laughs> The, the numbers tell a story, and you're right. And many of us, I think, fail to use those numbers and translate them into impact and stories. And that helped me as an English undergraduate major. Uh, the liberal arts in me wanted to tell stories. In fact, I think the marriage of the numbers and the stories can make you a very effective uh, leader and ambassador for your cause. Right, absolutely. So someone, say someone starting, though, from an administrative or operations kind of career path, because usually, you know, especially when you grad are just graduating, um, whether just undergraduate or graduate degree, you often don't get placed directly into a leadership position. That may be the case. Um, but what does that kind of career path look like or what could it look like for someone who's in a position that doesn't quite have the leadership elements, but wants to be in that position eventually? Do you work with a lot of developing leaders in that way? Indeed, it's a great question. Um, and you're right, many, however, will just say, well, I'm not getting the opportunities yet, so I'm just gonna wait and hope that I get that. But I think you have to be proactive. Mm-hmm. And so you need to maximize opportunities within the current job environment you're in. Maybe you volunteer for some activities, get involved, in the strategic planning of the organization, be willing to go out and speak on behalf of the organization. Um, If you don't have those opportunities because of the nature of your job description, look for opportunities of leadership in your volunteer work. Um, You can build your resume, so to speak, even if your current job doesn't necessarily afford you all those experiences. So it's up to you, I think, and that's why my kind of coaching advice is often, you need to own your own professional development plan. Don't wait for your organization to do it. And if you aspire to leadership, then you need to go ahead and build your experience and skill set accordingly. Look at job descriptions of the senior positions to which you aspire. What do they ask for? You may find that, in fact, you have many of the requisite skill and experience 
And if you don't, then that gives you a clear plan of what you need to work on. The other thing too, Rebecca, I say it, the power of strategic networking um, is enormous. And I look back on my journey, every single opportunity I had was, I think, good fortune for me. I was lucky, but it was also the result of strategic networking. And by staying in touch outside of my organization, opportunities will emerge. So if I were new in the field, I would want to identify first a couple of people that are doing similar work at other organizations, create my network there. So I have a peer group because often you can be in a lonely world and your entry level position at a, a nonprofit or any organization. I also want to identify aspirational peers. When I started Special Olympics, the program director at North Carolina, the first question I asked colleagues at the national office was, who, who is considered the best at this work? And, and, and I would ask multiple people. And of course, it's a subjective analysis. But more often than not, they were like, oh, yeah, you need to talk to Mark in New Jersey and you need to talk to Susan in Colorado. And I then reached out to those two individuals who were gracious with their time. You know, they're decades ahead of me on the journey, but by talking to them, I think it helped me accelerate my path because I could ask them simple questions like, all right, what, what was your biggest challenge when you started in this role? How did you advance into the senior position now? What helped you? What resources were critical to that advancement? And so again, back to your good question that, being intentional about building skills and experiences, number one, and two, identifying a strategic network, I think are critical and will help you advance. That's great. That's also such a great point. Um, it leads right into developing your mentor network almost too. So it's aspirational peers. Yes. But I think sometimes uh, asking someone to be a mentor is, it seems like a huge hurdle, um, but you're always advised to do it. So it seems like a great next step way of reaching out to people and kind of developing that network as well. Yeah, what I, I have still tried to do this to this day is have in, informational interviews. In other words, don't go straight to, hey, will you be my mentor, mm-hmm. right? Not everyone's going to be a good fit, right? But you can always gain value from informational interviews. In this day and age, you can Zoom with somebody for 30 minutes. And right. if you do those enough, certain people, however, will really click. And maybe they would be willing, hey, would you be willing to do this, you know, this kind of conversation a couple of times a year? In essence, will you serve as a mentor? But I find that if, if you do two or three of these a month and you're, you're having 20 to 25 of these a year, you're going to build a wealth of knowledge and experience and networking. And I bet of those 25, a couple of them might well say, yeah, I'd love to keep this conversation going and as you said, Rebecca, maybe serve in that proverbial mentor role. Right. Yeah. But and also it takes a little of the pressure away from the person asking and the person giving. Because you see first. Exactly. Exactly right. That's a great plan for sure. I'll, I'll use that for sure. Make <laughs> in my own. My maybe own. it'll help. Maybe so. Yes. So I heard you talk um, on another podcast episode about the need for there's mission, vision, action in nonprofit organizations, but also within a person and being able to articulate your own personal passion. Um, I think a lot of people feel it, but maybe don't feel the need to draft it out and have your bullet points and know exactly what your outline and guide is. 
So what does it look like for someone trying to figure out their own personal mission and vision? That's a great question. And you're right. The exercise can somewhat feel artificial. But I do think, especially, and I've talked to many of the talented, you know, a few of the the talented graduate students coming through the program, the challenge some of them have is they have such a wonderful array of experience, but it's so much, it's almost overwhelming. And so my question becomes, all right, I don't actually know where this person wants to go. And so I put on my fundraising hat, which is if I were raising money for an organization, we talk about articulating a very clear and concise case for support. Mission, vision, action is in fact a case for support. Mission is what we do, and I can give you evidence of our success. Vision, however, represents the the challenge that still remains, the need that still exists. And and as an organization, this is what we're, we're going for. And action becomes, this is literally how someone can invest or engage. And I, it occurred to me that a lot of very talented nonprofit professionals articulate the organizational case beautifully. And then when I ask them, all right, well, what do you want to do? What is your case for support? And, and they struggle. They're like, well, you know, I don't know. I guess I want to be a leader someday. You know, I'm on a ladder of some sort and maybe it'll just kind of emerge for me. I'm like, no, you need to articulate with the same enthusiasm that you just did for your organization. Your mission is to serve, you know, a sector. And so, Rebecca, what I do is I ask them, all right, if you're not ready to give me your uh, exact case for support, let's talk about where your journey might lead you. Do you want to stay in the same sector you're in now? Healthcare, education, you know, arts and culture, environment, that's fine. But whatever you do know, let's work toward that. Um, Do you want to stay in this area? You and I talked about it. You know, some people are like, yeah, I'd go anywhere for the right job. Others are like, no, I can't. I've got family commitments or whatever. But the point is, you can answer these questions about what kind of organization do you want to work with in terms of size and scope? You like a large institutional organization with all the resources it provides? Or would you like to be in a smaller organization where you could, in fact, wear many hats and get other types of experience? Um, let's face it, another factor in our sector is also compensation, right? right? And so let's put that, we need to evaluate that. You may say, I love my current opportunity, but it simply is not sufficient in terms of the compensation I'm going to need. And I'm like, well, then we're going to have to look at other options. Either you're going to have to go up the ladder where more compensation is available, or you might have to look at something else. But the point is, and, and again, that's why I like this exercise, we can break down the mission, vision, action into your personal plan and then begin practicing because everyone listening is going to be sitting with or zooming with someone who can help you. Mm. And what I want you to be able to do is when they say, all right, Rebecca, what, tell me, you know, what is your plan? What, what, to the extent, you know, and for you to be able to say, Hey, I've been, I've had some fantastic experience. I've been in the sector. I've been doing this, this, and this but I aspire to lead. I want to lead a healthcare nonprofit, or I want to be the the best at my work in the state of New York. You know, so you got my attention now. I see, wow, Rebecca's got some aspiration here behind her plan. And then you are clear. And this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for 
opportunities to network. I'm looking for advanced training or whatever. To me, that personal mission, vision, action allows you to get clearer in your head and allow someone to help you even more. Right. And then do you find that people sometimes like have difficulty articulating because they're worried it's still evolving or they're not sure what they want to do yet? So is it just because they don't know that final stage and are exploring along the way? Or what, what brings like the difficulties in actually like articulating there? That, that's a great point. And, and I, and I want to make clear that it's okay if you don't have the absolute answer. I've had some people say, you know what, I, I think I want to remain in education, but I, I'd consider opportunities in healthcare too. You know, I feel a passion for that as well. And so I, one, I would offer relief. Don't worry if you haven't figured it all out, but depend, that could be part of your case for support. I'm, I'm speaking with you and I'm like, Rebecca, I, I, I would be honest, you know, but I've, I've at least narrowed it to those two sectors. So then you can say, all right, well, Patton, you're interested in education and healthcare. I know someone in healthcare that you ought to speak with that might be worth kind of part of this journey. So relieving them of the pressure, you may not have it completely figured out, but let's articulate what you do know, and then we can work on those that remain. Yeah, it's funny. it almost relates back to being like a thesis statement for your your goal and your plans. <laughs> great way my, to put it. What's my three that's points? A, that's a great way to put it. And then yeah. if you and your conversational friend want to expand on it, you know, like the whole the rest of the paper, right. you can do so. <laughs> exactly. I think building in exploration as a point like how, how that can be one of your points that's happening, um, especially right. since people may not know if they've only worked in smaller organizations how they would feel working in a larger one. Maybe they'd feel wonderful being part of that, you know, that small part of a massive organization, but not know it yet. But building that into the plan is a possibility, you're saying. Exactly. Or talk to people, and in fact, intentionally talk to people at both sides of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Because that might help, in, in your mind, help illuminate, all right? Because if I ask similar questions, what do you like best about working at that large international organization? And I ask a similar question to someone working small. Each Either or might resonate with me, but you're smart to kind of have conversations on both sides of the spectrum so you get greater clarity yourself. Right. It's always a great excuse, too. And we've talked about a few points that are great excuses to have those informational interviews. And once again, continue expanding that network. And so part of your exploration, um, I think sometimes we think that informational interviews are thinly guised job job quests, but they don't always sometimes. <laughs> it, and you're right. And and sometimes it it may lead to that, but you have to be ready for the fact if it doesn't, you still made a good contact, right? Absolutely. And so it's it's good. I often try to reach out and, and encourage people, even if you're job hunting, you know, talk to people who don't maybe have a position open now, but who knows? They may have something to open in three months. Absolutely. And so you've you've made a good impression and that'll certainly pay off. Definitely. Um, kind of shifting from like personal development to almost like sector-wide developments that you've seen. Like what are some of those big shifts in or like or what are the big shifts that you've seen in the nonprofit sector over your career? And it and then does that or and how does it translate to the kinds of like leaders that you work with? Have you seen like an evolution in the types of people? Um, would definitely be curious to hear your thoughts on that yeah the 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 headline that emerges in that question is the the hr components of talent identification and retention 
the nonprofit sector struggles with turnover mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is compensation. And so good people, even if they're passionate about the mission, ultimately may have to make a change because they need and deserve more. Um, so I think that it, COVID, uh, you know, if there's a silver lining of COVID, it created a forced flexibility, of course, for all of us. And the technology you and I are using right now mm-hmm. and the opportunities for hybrid work environments, maybe we don't have to go into the office every day from eight to five. And so that to me is a trend that's not going away. In fact, as I talk to many leaders, uh, number one, the thing that keeps them up at night is often talent losing my best people or the inability to find uh, adequate talent to fill the needs I have. So there's an increasing demand, I think, on nonprofit leaders to have HR skills. In other words, you've got to create an environment that someone wants to come work with you. Do you provide professional development and, and, and an atmosphere that lends itself to uh, all kinds of personal and professional development? Because uh, if you don't, they're going somewhere else. And so that, I guess, is the first trend. And, and it, it related trend, um, I, and I think in a good way, the added focus had lately on mental health. That is mental health in this country. And so nonprofit leaders being more sensitive, providing an environment that doesn't burn out our people. Are you emailing them in the middle of the night? Are you yourself modeling good behavior? Uh, Or are you creating stress? And that's hard. Tom, in the conversation we just had uh, recently talked about, because the, the nature of the work you're doing is powerful and emotionally draining. You know, if you're trying to cure disease and you're trying to deal with homelessness and, and domestic violence, and these are issues that are powerful and hard to, to let go, um, you have to be even more intentional, I think, about creating an environment in which people can work and not burn out. So those, I guess, would be a couple things I'd lift up, I guess, in that HR category, uh, which suggests the future is going to require that skill even more. Whereas historically, we kind of, everybody did it the same way because they've always done it. I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make too. I was thinking about burnout affecting the ability of people that do want to take on leadership roles, that do want to maybe need to step out of their current role like and take on volunteer positions and something. But if you're already burned out with the work that you're doing, then that transition seems impossible. You're exactly right. And sadly, I see what you just described. And I just hope that, again, we can better equip or the emerging leaders of the next generations, um, at least with this awareness and hopefully the tools so that, you know, we don't lose good people because these causes need good people to stay with them. And and that's what we want to avoid. Yeah. Um, so yeah, COVID, as you mentioned, obviously had impacts across the spectrum on the nonprofit sector. Um, one of those was moving people to work remotely, which might give added capacity. But I'm curious about your thoughts on how the transition to working remotely that some people have adopted permanently, um, how that affects like a nonprofit's culture, leadership styles and effectiveness. Have you seen um, many changes in that area? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I know nonprofit leaders are wrestling with it because you, yes, there's a convenience and an efficiency to not having to have the commute. If I can work from home and get my job done 
then why don't we just leave it alone? But to your point of what about the effect on the culture of our organization, I see more and more, I think, enlightened nonprofit leaders looking for a middle ground um, from simply everybody comes into the office on Monday and Tuesday. We will conduct all of our in-person meetings then, and then you have the flexibility the rest of the week or some variation of, you know, there are certain days or times when we want everybody together, but we are recognizing and, and letting people go home early so they can be home when their kids get home from school and just allowing a greater flexibility. Those are the organizations I think that are going to succeed and in fact build culture because of that. And again, let's face it, the technology we have is advantageous that we can get our work done, perhaps that would not have been really reasonable 20 years ago. Um, But that's something I think, um, I do think is going to continue. And final point, it's a competitive advantage or disadvantage. In other words, nonprofits that are like, well, no exception, we need everybody back in the office. I'm like, all right, talented people are going to evaluate your opportunity versus another one. And flexibility is likely going to win. Right. Do you think, I mean, potentially helpful aspect of it, though, is that leaders are thinking like more, much more carefully about the culture and communication styles and those times that people are brought together. Um, So there is a potential opportunity there to think more carefully about how we work collaboratively instead of just everyone in an office, like taking advantage of that time that people are together to actually really help promote that sense of collaboration. That's a great point. I found that our the the forced Zoom environment we all lived in for the last few years um, has allowed a lot more thoughtful and uh, I guess design around even our meetings together. Mm-hmm. You know, let's take advantage, as you just said, Rebecca, when we come together, are, are we having good meetings? Right. Are we boring each other to tears with this kind of institutional agenda instead of like let's really let's talk about what are the challenges we're facing around the table if we're in person? And and so good leaders, I think you're right, want to make sure that we're, you know, doing things to allow our team to unwind and not just kind of grind them through what, you know, has been an institutional history. Right. Yeah, the whole um, idea around meeting culture and the numbers and how many are needed. My goodness. Interesting one. <laughs> we're, we're killing ourselves. I've got a colleague, Lee Williams, who did her, her doctoral work in meeting science, which I, I tease her. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing. But she absolutely says the amount of time in every sector that we frankly waste in bad meetings is mm-hmm. unbelievable. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to champion her cause and say, yeah, what are you doing as a leader of a nonprofit to create more effective time together? And and stop wasting everyone's time. And by the way, your volunteer board members don't want to volunteer to come to a terrible board meeting agenda (laughs) that is simply a report to being kind of thrown at them. They want to engage just as your staff does. So what are you doing to create this space for real engagement, as you suggest? Um. I'm curious about what your definition of a resilient nonprofit would be. Um, I'm thinking some examples of how, you know, we were just talking about ones that during COVID, like, are now bouncing back, maybe creating a hybrid work environment, um, like that evolution. Like, what does it look like for a nonprofit to kind of cultivate, like, resilience? um, And how does, or how is that seen in a leader? 
I think a, a one place I would start is the ability for a leader to have community collaboration skills. Um, in times of crisis, isolation, I think, is even more deadly. And, and so another positive sign in the pandemic was I found many nonprofits reached out to, because we're all stuck, they started reaching out to their colleagues in similar spaces. So nonprofit leaders of homeless shelters were creating a network that maybe really didn't exist or not really in a meaningful way. And every sector seemed, many of the good ones I felt found that connection. So there's, there's both the emotional support, but to your point, the resilient nonprofit, by having a better sense of the larger community I think can react more quickly because I'm talking to my colleague. What are you seeing, right? Mm -hmm. My colleague in another community, in another state, what are you seeing? What issues are you dealing with? How did you deal with it? How are your funders responding? And so that ability to get real-time intelligence gathering from a even an informal network, I think is fantastic. And I think that helps insulate them when the next trend occurs or disaster even, mm -hmm they're going to be more ready and they're going to have a network built in to help them better adapt. Right. I love that. We definitely saw that during COVID people getting together, like on a moment's notice to be able to talk about what was happening, how the organizations were dealing with it. Um, so yeah, as we can see, network is definitely a recurring theme of what's needed, not only as a person, but for an organization. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, as far as, like we definitely have discussed like fundraising and how important like a huge aspect that is for nonprofits. I'm wondering if there are other, another trend in philanthropy too is um, like what are capacity building resources that funders or communities could kind of offer nonprofits um, beyond funding? Like what else is needed? Potentially like connections to networks, things like that. But are there other items that nonprofits need besides only funding? Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, um, coaching and development across the board. So in other words, communities can offer because as you know, nonprofits generally are understaffed or certainly understaffed in comparison to their for-profit peers. And so expertise is often valuable. If I have someone who's doing the accounting functions for my nonprofit, but they may not be uh, you know, an experienced accountant. They're doing bookkeeping or whatnot. And so can we provide resources to help them with some of the technology issues that they face? I mean, think about the issues of cybersecurity that affect all of us. Um, nonprofits are even more vulnerable because mm -hmm. they don't have the hardware, the software, and the technology to uh, resist. I, I, I've talked to a lot of people that are very concerned about that. So if we want to help our nonprofits, maybe there's infrastructure, things like that, that we could help. Yes, we want the money, as you said, the funding support, but I think there are other ways to invest time and talent and uh, what I would call infrastructure resources so that our nonprofits can focus on what we want them to do, which okay. is, you know, their mission. I'm curious what you would say to um, any students who may be nearing just starting their, starting their journey um, in school, undergraduate, graduate, who are maybe considering a career in the nonprofit sector, but have not had experience in it yet at all. They could be coming from um, a lot of my peers in my cohort have come from a whole range of backgrounds, um, but maybe they're interested in the nonprofit sector. What kind of advice would you give them to 
try it out, <laughs> adding exploration to their to their thesis Great statement. Point. Um, but like, what would you recommend for them to do and to start exploring that career path? Well, one way is the uh, strategic volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I use that term intentionally because there are lots of wonderful volunteer opportunities where you show up on a Saturday morning and, you know, you clean up after the 5k race and, and that's wonderful. So I'm not diminishing that, but I think if I'm exploring the career, I want to volunteer in a way that allows me a little bit more of an inside view. So in other words, Maybe you can serve even on the board of directors for a local nonprofit or serve on a committee. Um, it, it, I, I can't imagine there aren't many nonprofits who wouldn't be willing to find a good volunteer opportunity, especially if you have a certain skill or experience you want to offer. You know, if I'm a graphic designer and I go and say to a nonprofit, hey, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to help and volunteer my time to help you redo your website or redo some of your print material. Um, that might, in other words, give you an experience. You're interacting with staff and maybe other volunteers and could not totally, but I think you could get a feel for the culture of that nonprofit organization. And so whether it's, again, board level volunteering or tactical support level volunteering, um, I would go back to what you and I talked about too, Rebecca, is to me, the most efficient way to get a sense of the sector is have strategic interviews. In other words, I could go work for one or volunteer for one, but I'm only getting one right. as a result. But if I were to talk to 10 people across the country, especially if I had a general idea of what sector is interesting to me, I think that would give you a much deeper study, if you will, and would help you feel like, all right, now I understand. I know what to look for. I see the characteristics that are most important to me based on these conversations. And now I can target my job search accordingly. Right. Definitely. That's amazing advice. Um, I'll ask you for one more piece. I know we're running out of time a little bit here, but um, are there any book or resource recommendations other than your podcast and your book? Obviously, <laughs> Those are top recommended. We'll make sure to link them um, for our listeners. But what kinds of like books or resource recommendations for people that are already working in one or interested at all to work with nonprofits. It's funny you mentioned that because I lifted this up in a um, the, the class I was guest lecturing today. There's a book called Engine of Impact that I think is fantastic. The two authors are Meehan and Jonker. Um, it has been one of the best books I've read lately that offers both a historical perspective of the nonprofit sector but offers some really good strategic and tactical advice in terms of leading an organization. So the authors uh, look at some of the best and worst that have things that have occurred in this sector. So you get really a textbook feel in that sense. But I also found practical takeaways like, wow, they talk about organizations who very effectively do strategic planning and very effectively have uh, scaled uh, the impact of their organization in dramatic ways. So Engine of Impact is my current uh, recommendation. Right, amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your experience, motivations, and thoughts today. Um, it was really inspiring to hear, hear from you and learn about the challenges and rewards of working in nonprofit organizations. I hope this conversation inspired our listeners to consider the nonprofit sector as a fulfilling and impactful career path and think about ways they can support the important work of these organizations in their communities. 
Um, don't forget to subscribe to Dr. McDowell's podcast, Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, as well as this podcast and the Cornell Policy Review. Once again, a big thank you to Dr. McDowell and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in.